Episode 6 of the Beyond the Blade Around the Atlantic miniseries. I am your host, Anthony Chandra, and this week we have our guests from the Legion of Evil. I mean, covering the Toronto Maple Leafs. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, we've got Sean Orr and Trevor Bast from Left Coast Leafs Podcast. Sean, Trevor, what is going on, guys? Oh, just excited to talk some Leafs and Sabres. <laughs> It, it, it's been it's been a loosely defined rivalry, I want to say, because like it's tough to be a rival with a team that isn't very good, or I guess conversely, a team that's way better than you. But uh, you know, proximity, Sabers and Maple Leafs will always be rivals. First thing I kind of want to get into here is the notable additions, right? Because the Maple Leafs had a pretty busy off season. Uh, start with the trades. First and foremost, on July first, they made kind of their blockbuster trade of the off season. They sent Nazem Kadri and Kelly Rosen and third round pick to Colorado for Tyson Berry, Alex Kerfoot, and a sixth. I want to get your thought on that trade. I think both. I think it's relatively even, but I wanted to hear what you guys had to say from a lease perspective. I think on my end, it was a it was a needed trade just because Kadri was not a third line center. He's a second line center, and he didn't he didn't work in that third line role. It's just, it was kind of a waste for him. And by trading him, we were able to upgrade our defense with the addition of Barry. And then I'm a, I'm a big fan of, but I like his game. I think he fits the role perfectly. He comes in cheaper at caught than Caudry was. And I just, I really like that addition. It ends up, we get one year of, of Barry because he's going to be gone to free agency. We can't afford him. But I really like the, the the two players we get back for for the for Cadre going out. I love Cadre. He's my he's my favorite player. least, mm. uh, but uh, losing him hurts. But uh, I'm excited for him. Yeah, I mean, he really underperformed as a third line center. I, I don't think that's his role. And the fact that we, he had those two playoff suspensions, I think it was just a bridge too far for. For what they're trying to accomplish now, and the pressure to get past that first round, to to overlook that and uh, fill the big time hole with a right-handed top four D, even if, even if it's only for one year, we're all good with that, and we'll miss Naz, but we definitely have our top four structured the way our coach wants it to be with the handedness and and the style of play that the GM is trying to build. So, yeah, it was it was tough, but uh, I think it's made us better. 
So do you think Barry is going to kind of serve as the replacement on the back end to Jake Gardner, who, as we all know, went to Carolina via free agency? Basically, I think that's what that's what he's coming in for. I, I, I like Barry. I'm a big fan of his. I I think it's very he's very similar to uh, to Gardner uh, in their offensive ability. It'll be it'll be see if he's an upgrade from a defensive standpoint, which I think is uh, which is important here. Yeah, that'll be the that'll be the the question. Uh, funny enough, like we're in Victoria, BC, mm-hmm. and for all you uh, American listeners, that's out by Seattle. And that's uh, that's Barry's hometown. So we watched him through a lot of his minor hockey and and junior some of his junior years, and he's a he's a riverboat gambler. And I said on our last podcast that he is kind of our our right-handed gardener. Uh, he will be on the ice for goals against. He will make defensive errors, but there'll be more errors of sort of gambling on plays than how we perceive Jake near the end as sort of lazy defensively. Mm. So maybe his mistakes will be a bit more palatable than say Jake's were near, as, as the fan base became really divided on Jake. Yeah, they did. I mean, Jake Gardner from, from an analytical standpoint is quite good or, I mean, his, his metrics are, are quite favorable, but uh, yeah, the mm-hmm. uh, Leafs fan base was, was definitely a little bit back and forth on him. Uh, they were not very forgiving of his mistakes there late in the season. You're absolutely right about that. Um, yeah. Last couple of years. Sure. <laughs> a couple uh minor deals kind of to, to circle out here on, on July 1st, they also made a trade with the Ottawa senators they sent Nikita Zaitsev, Connor Brown, and Michael Sarconi to the Sens for Cody Ceci, Ben Harper, Aaron Luchuk, and a third. Ben Harper, I believe, got waived yesterday. What do you, what do you he think did. of Ceci? He, he's, he's obviously a guy who Senators fans wanted him to be more than he ever ended up being. He got you know a little one-year, $4.5 million contract from the Leafs after they acquired him. What's your take on him? Well, I mean... I'm going to like, we're, we're hard on our guys. I mean, Leafs mm-hmm. fans are hard on their guys. And I mean, and there's, there's a lot of chatter amongst Leafs nation and Leafs Twitter that, that CC's coming in sort of just as a placeholder for one year until we can upgrade our D the expectations are fairly, are fairly low, but his analytics and his, his um, past history is not great as a, as a puck mover mm-hmm. and that's kind of counter to what the Leafs are trying to build, but then either was Zaitsev. Right. So right. I, I think I've, for me, I'm, I'm willing to just give CC a clean slate and I'll, I'll judge him on his regular season performance here on a game by game basis. And the biggest thing for, for CC is we got similar caliber defenseman as Zaitsev but we got we shed four years of of a bad mm-hmm. contract so you're going to be so I, I think that's at him by the first period then <laughs> yeah watch tune into my twitter by the first intermission on wednesday and you'll kind of know where we stand on <laughs> <laughs> we don't run to judgment we'll give him one period <laughs> <laughs> hey that's a full 20 minutes man it's plenty of time yeah <laughs> one of the one, pr- of thing, one of the things about uh cc that's uh, you know, I was talking to Michaela Schreider last week on our Ottawa Senators episode. She felt that he was just kind of asked to do too much in Ottawa. He was kind of playing at, at a at a expectation with, you know, 25, 26 minutes a game, 
kind of just above his ability level, he's not going to have that problem in Toronto. I mean, if anything, he's going to be probably a third pairing guy, wouldn't you say? He could creep yeah, down I think there. He's the I think he's going to be on the top four. I think. Oh, uh, really? I think uh, he's going to be playing with uh, it looks like Riley. Um, so he'll probably be a top four guy uh, with Muzzy playing with Barry. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to be a guy that Babcock is going to fall in love with just because <laughs> of whatever thing that Babcock feels that he brings to the table. Um, so I think you're looking at him being a top four guy. Uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, it looks like a, a rookie. Um, Rasmus Sandin's going to mm-hmm. make. 19-year-old looks like an absolute stud. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays into it. And then with Travis Dermott coming off of the shoulder uh, surgery that he had and, and who fills that that five, six, seven role is going to be real interesting, right? I think CC is is firmly in the top four with the Leafs. Interesting. Yeah, Rasmus Sandin, you mentioned him, and, and obviously we had a little – chance to watch him uh during the preseason those back-to-back games against toronto and yeah he looks really good i mean he just he looks like the real deal and he's only 19 which is just crazy uh yeah you guys have a good one there for sure yeah and i mean cc starting there i think with with Sandin being the surprise that he's been and dermot coming back um i i mean i guess we have options if cc is a bit overwhelmed in that top four role it just doesn't fit into the handedness that mm. that they've strived to achieve on that top four left the left right combinations, but at the end of the day, I mean Riley has historically been able to play his off wing. Uh, so is Dermot. So there's there's some options back there, and I think we have even having sometimes even having one more option than you thought you had is a is a bonus, and that's that's sure. having a, a 19 year old stepping in as and we'll see how he does like in the first 10 games of the season. And uh, but that's that helps a lot. Let's talk a little bit about some of the signings. Uh, you know, Toronto brought in Jason Spezza on a one year deal, kind of you know, that veteran edition, almost a little similar to not as expensive or or as you know, a high expectation, but the Marlowe deal from a couple years ago. Uh, you know, they extended Kerfoot after they traded for him, no surprise there. He got a four year deal worth, worth 14 million. Uh, they, you know, they traded Jordan Schmaltz in exchange for Andres Borgman, which is, you know, kind of a, a smaller end thing, but let's talk about the real whole, the whole piece de resistance of the Toronto off season, our friend, your friend, everybody's friend, Mitch Marner, six years, <laughs> 65.36, very important to get the point three, six in there million dollars. I think at least fans were really stoked. I mean, it's an expensive deal. No, no question about that, but just a shade under that $11 million a year. Give me your thoughts on that contract. At the end of the day, regardless of all the, the, the dad and the agent and, and Darren Drager being painted as, a, as, as an insider for them, I think that Dubas, he got the Matthews contract right. He got the Nylander contract right at the end of the day. And I think the impossible situation that he had with Mitch Marner was – he had a comparable once Matthews was signed of a guy who he is as important to on the team as, mm-hmm. and, and no other RFA had that on their team. And there wasn't enough arguments against that, that they could give to the Marner camp that would let that would, that would make them say, Oh, I guess you're right. We'll sign for nine five because as Leafs fans, we like Mitch Marner is as important 
to our team and our success as Austin Matthews, regardless of the premium or so-called premium on centers versus wingers, scorers versus playmakers. He's really important. And they, they couldn't, they couldn't discount that. And the fact that every other guy came in and signed what they did sign for on their bridges or their long terms, Dubas was screwed. He was screwed as soon as the Matthews deal was, was signed. And that, that ultimately was the comparable. And that's, that's it. And now we just, everybody's locked in for five years and we just go for it now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know the, the contract talk was a little bit of a sticking point there, but I will say that from an outsider's perspective, I don't necessarily agree with the masses that it, it was an overpay by any extent. I mean, Mitch Marner, like you just said, is just as critical part of that team, maybe as Austin Matthews, you know what I mean? And yeah, you don't let that guy go. You just, can't. you signed John, you signed John Taveras. You got to have someone that helps him go. I mean, You're it's absolutely. all, the symmetry is going to be there and they're, they're not, they don't have any bad contracts now. They've, they've shed themselves of Marlowe and Zaitsev. They got every D except Riley's on a one-year deal. They can, they can reshape. They can reload, and and that's kind of what the league's becoming about right now. You sign up your core, and then you kind of reload. And I, I all, all season, I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to the fact that St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they were dead last on January sixth, and it, it's just every year is just a different animal. And yeah. now they have their they had their they had the guys locked up, and that's that's all that matters to us now. Yeah, for sure. And and it's funny, anytime a Sabres fan wants to kind of throw stones a little bit at that deal, I, I gently remind them that we just signed a winger for $9 million a year, who is definitely not $1.9 million lesser of a player than Mitch Marner. He's significantly less than that. I love Jeff Skinner, yeah. but like, let's, let's not kid ourselves here. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would pay 2 million plus more for Mitch Marner than I would Jeff Skinner. So it, it's tough to throw stones at that deal. And I think I think people are, are, man, I think they're just so ready to look for something Dubas does wrong because he's so different, right? And, and they kind of want that, yeah. like, you know, the, the boy genius kind of guy to get, you know, get his lumps. But in, in reality, I think he's done a fine job, especially Ned. Oh, yeah. The way he has. Yeah. And I mean, and this, I mean, he's, Dubas is, Dubas is going to come out of this looking like a genius or a, or a complete failure. I mean, this, this team is a science experiment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and they're gonna play some bloody exciting regular season hockey and let's hope that let's hope that they're allowed to play that style in the playoffs more so than the league has mm. tended to let teams play that style in the playoffs historically yeah for sure speaking of playoffs let's, yeah. let's take let's take a little jump here toronto as everybody knows has lost in the first round for three straight seasons, right? A lot of that has to do with what I feel is a broken playoff format, but we won't really get too far into that. Yeah. What will it take for the Leafs to kind of get that monkey off their back this year, as you said, and advance? There's a good chance they're going to run into Boston again. I mean, if you look at the Atlantic division, maybe Florida threatens them, maybe Montreal threatens Boston for that third spot. But in reality, it's probably going to be the same top three. Do you think that what the Leafs did this offseason helps them be better positioned to, to finally get past that first round? I think the 
it's it's way too early to make that assessment just because it's there's so much hockey to be played and and mm-hmm. say we're playing boss in the first round it could be like the it's the obvious thing to say but but we don't know like will this be the year that Bergeron finally regresses because he's getting older uh especially with Char as well I think it's it's one where winning the division is so key and, and where things get to because really you can make the case that the top three teams in the East are, are Toronto, uh, Tampa, Boston, no particular order. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Florida is going to emerge this year in that division with Bobrovsky. Uh, and now they can have a save. Uh, so I think it's, it, it's, it's way too early to even look at Boston. I think it's the, it's the easy thing to talk about and, and really, if, if we don't go on a long playoff run this year, it's, it's going to hurt. Like this, this team is positioned to make a run this year. We have no cap space. The, the team, we can't really make a trade midseason where we stand. Um, so I think it's, it's a big year for the team. And not getting out of the first round will be a, a significant issue. Yeah, I mean, I think last year there was, there was some warning signs. And, I mean, they, they went – they were they were twenty six and twenty six the last fifty two games. The power play just fell right off the a cliff in the last half of the season. Last three quarters of the season really started so hot. And I, I believe that with the change of assistant coaches, maybe pressing Babcock a little bit more out of his comfort zone with the power play, uh, they're going to identify some of those issues earlier on. And hopefully not be so set in their ways. And I mean, if you look at it, I mean, they had a they had a game six at home to clinch. Uh, they had another game seven. And I mean, I guess if they if they learned anything, I think it's this: you have to be adaptable, and you have to uh, you know Babcock's got to just be a little bit more aggressive in his coaching style. And not not get out coached. That's kind of the thing. Like I think he gets a little bit out coached in game, and and that's uh, that's something they have to work on. Yeah, I mean Babcock's been kind of kind of an interesting guy, especially you know at the end of last season. If you looked at Leafs Twitter after you know they were eliminated in that first round, they were just furious. They were so a lot of guys were ready to give him the axe, right? And Sheldon Keefe, yeah. he appears to be very capable, you know, kind of a coach in waiting with the Marlies. I, w- I want to get your guys' take point blank here. Are you happy that Babcock is back, or would you have rather seen Keefe get his shot? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Trevor wanted uh, Babcock to be fired because he is the biggest Babcock hater out there. Uh, I'm I'm more on the I, – I, I like him. I could, You can't – I don't think you fire a coach like Babcock, to be honest. I think it's, I think it's, this is a big year and it comes down to, does he make the adjustments? Um, does he not fall in love with certain players? But I, I'll be more critical of Babcock this year, but, but nowhere to the sense of like, if we're like a, a top five team in the, the NHL, it, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to, to make those issues mid season. And I think it, it all comes down to what happens in the playoffs. Like this team is, it, it's the playoff results that matter here. The, the regular season, I'm not saying is meaningless, but from like a Babcock coaching standpoint, there, there's zero chance they make a move mid season. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to what they do in playoffs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if coaching matters, 
I believe that he's he's not the guy that will be there when the Leafs when if the, this core group wins the cup. Like I think there's there's many examples of teams getting to a certain point and then having another guy push them over. And for all of my criticisms of him, that first day they hired the guy, he st- sat there and said, "We're going to make this a safe place." for players to play, meaning the crap with the, the media, you know, all the stuff with Randy Carlisle and, and, they, and he did, he did it. He fulfilled that prophecy. He, he did it right. It's mm-hmm. been a, it's a, an extremely credible professionally run organization now, but if I don't believe that he can go four rounds, competitive rounds of the playoffs, and be better than the guy on the other bench. Hmm, and interesting. So you know, I don't think I don't think so. It's got to be a, a a situation where Pittsburgh Belzma in 08, he was he was fired, and or you know he Belzma came in and finished somebody else's job. Sutter came in and finished somebody else's job in in LA. Mike Sullivan came in and finished somebody else's job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. I think that's just the evolution of of growing hockey teams, and I think that's I think that's how this is going to end up playing out. But I think he's going to be here the whole year. Yeah, I I, I don't ex- I mean, barring something just catastrophic like them starting under five hundred for the first like thirty games, I don't see bad exactly getting yeah. you know axed halfway through the year. Uh, I think he'll get the full season, like you said, and and you know. Sheldon Keith is just too interesting to ignore though. I mean, it seems like two straight summers where teams have been sniffing around him and he's, you know, stayed true to Kyle Dubas. Like he doesn't, you know I mean? He doesn't want to leave the organization because he knows he's kind of that, you know, heir apparent, so to speak. But yeah. at some point, I mean, if Babcock, you know, say, say they win two rounds this year and he stays around, Sheldon Keith's going to go somewhere. You'd have to think, right? He's also getting well, paid a million plus, though, to be an AHL coach. So that's true. Not, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's paid, he's paid more than half of the NHL coaches, maybe. So that's. But eventually, that's he's going to want to want the status too, right? Mm-hmm. All right, we are going to take a quick thirty-second break. I am here with Sean Orr and Trevor Bast. Episode six of the Beyond the Blade Around the Atlantic miniseries. We're talking about the Maple Leafs. Don't go away. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, Sabres fans. We are talking to the fellas from Left Coast Leafs podcast, obviously, about the Toronto Maple Leafs. One of the things I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit, because I know, man, it seems like for years now, the Leafs blue line from their fan base gets a lot of flack and and, and a lot of it's deserved, right? I want to talk about the goaltending too. I mean, as a whole, that group was not spectacular last year. 
Anderson was actually pretty okay from a GSAX standpoint, but Sparks and Hutcherson were just awful. And part of that, I believe, had to do with the defense, which for as strong as Toronto was as a team overall last year, was a definite weak spot. Are you concerned about that back end? I know they kind of made a, a small upgrade there, getting Barry in place of Gardner, or a potential upgrade, I should say. They brought in CC. Are you all right with how the Leafs front office addressed the issue, or do you think more maybe needed to be done there? I, I think Anderson, like in Anderson, I, I tend to disagree with you slightly. I think he's a he's an exceptional goalie, like a top five goalie in the league. Um, but I, I would agree that our uh, backup goalie situation definitely hurt us where Sparks was not good. Um, and that, that significantly hurts when you have a guy that plays a quarter of your games. Like, you know, your starters only really starting 60 games. So you need someone mm-hmm. that can play 20 games. Like that's, that's a lot. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we have uh, something in, in Hutchinson that, uh, that makes it, uh, at least can get us through those games, but uh, it, I think it's it's we have to wait and see. Um, it's uh, the backup goalie role. We were had the luxury of two years ago of having McElhaney, and I think the uh, the decision to go with Sparks over McElhaney, where I agreed with it when it was made, looking back on it now, is was definitely the wrong one because he was he's a solid goalie and would have provided that in a great role. And now we're we're struggling to get that position back on track. Yeah, we kind of joke that. Um... There's a kind of a joke among Leafs Nation that Babcock just he hates backup goalies. Like <laughs> it takes it just takes nothing for him to, to completely lose his confidence in a backup goalie. And like that they brought in Michael Neuberth this year on a PTO and he just he had a little bit of body issues, <laughs> as it was once stated. And then the guy's just like boom, he's on waivers or waived from his PTO, right? Like he's just I mean, Babcock is very, very hard on his backup goalies. He leans heavily on his starting goalie. He only gives the guys back-to-backs. That's all he uses his backups for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that that's a, it's a tough position. And so by the time we get to the playoffs, you know, Anderson's got 62, 63 games under his belt. And, you know, and we're relying on him to go, you know, two months with a 925 save percentage and help us win the Stanley cup. Like that's a bit, it's a big ask, but we've been very happy with Freddie as a regular season goalie. We joke that he has slow starts and we, and we have November Freddie and October Freddie. And we have all these little nicknames for him based Mm on kind of when he does sort of dip in the season, it's almost kind of predictable, but yeah, the backup, the backup position is tough, and I know that we're, it's one of the only fan bases that obsesses with seventh defensemen and backup goalies. But, I mean, that, that, that position is starting to matter more now. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, the Sabres as a whole, I mean, just had a heck of a time uh, just, just in net in general. I mean, Carter Hutton was at his very best average last year, and Linus Allmark had a really rough rookie season. But you're right. I mean, when you're relying on a goaltender to play, you know, everything but back-to-backs, as Sean just said, it's it's tough. I mean, especially when you reach the playoffs and you got to make a deep run. You know, you're you're playing, what, minimum 24 games in the playoffs, right? If you're going to make a run at the Cup, I mean, holy cow, that, that's, that's huge. And so I can see where, where the exhaustion factor would absolutely factor in there. And, you know, you'd hope during the season that backup could, could do a little bit more. 
But uh, yeah, it's so from a defense perspective, though, I mean, do you think they're better suited to kind of help those guys this year, help Michael Hutchinson be a better backup? Because they didn't play well in front of them. I hope so. I think with the, the way the D is built is to to get the puck and, and move it up ice to our forwards with our with really with the addition of, of Barry and Riley, mm-hmm. those two spread across our top two lines. Um, I think it, it's one where it's that's the the hope, but I think it's I think our defense is going to struggle again. I still think our our team is is built with an offensive. Uh, mindset and the defensive side of the game is is always the secondary but but if you have the puck all the time and you're always moving the puck in the offensive zone then you're you're not having to worry about defense but obviously that's mm-hmm. not always the case in the game but I think it, it comes down to the systems that are in place I think the the addition of uh, Dave Haxtell coming in and, and changing the penalty kill I think the penalty kill was was awful last year definitely in the series against Boston mm-hmm. have been the the backbreaker for us so I think it's the ability to make adjustments and changes in, in mid-game, mid-season, on the fly. That's the important one. It's not to always do what you, you think is right because you're so confident in yourself as a coach. The way it's built also is going to make a, it's, it's a, big, a big question mark as far as whether that kind of that style of defense can get you through the playoffs. Like we have – we kind of – if you want to – Jake Muzzin's a gritty defenseman. He's kind of our only one. Mm-hmm. And you know, the last few years, you've you've seen guys like Brooks Orpic, you know, be able to bury guys in the back in the back with cross checks into the boards in the third round of the playoffs, and that's not a penalty anymore. You know, and that that's separating the man from the puck. But that that's a penalty in the regular season. And you know, and Chara gets complete immunity most of the time from anything that he does. And and in St. Louis last year they had you know they had um, they had a few more physical defensemen. So I mean, like like I'll, I'll restate it. Like it's it's a it's a leap of faith. It's an experiment, and we are gonna have lots of quality shots against. But like Sean said, it's uh, the the idea is that the puck's gonna get on these guys' sticks and up and out quick, and uh, and hope to, and hope the damage wasn't too too bad in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, I think Sean nailed it with the zone exit point, right, where the Sabres made that a primary focus this offseason. And I guess you could even argue, uh, you know, last trade deadline when they brought in Brandon Montour, you know, they brought in Colin Miller, they traded for Henry Yokoharu, who's a young puck mover. I mean, that's that's the league now, right? I mean, you got to get the puck out of the zone into your forwards, you know, possession and like you said a moment ago, where those big bodied bruising guys, you know, used to be what made up your defense. It's not that anymore. It's guys who can get the puck out of the zone. And yeah, in the playoffs, yeah. that's exacerbated to an extent too. And, and, you know, you guys hit the nail on the head and I do think that the Leafs are, are probably more primed to be that, you know, I think they already were that type of team to be perfectly honest, but I think they're even primed to be better at it now. So yeah, that, that's all very interesting. One of the things before we sign off, and it's kind of something we've we've done kind of on every episode here, is kind of take a look into the future, right? And Toronto is obviously a, they have a really young, talented core already at the NHL level, but their prospect pool, oh god, their prospect pool is also very strong. Talk to me a little bit about which of the guys on the farm, either you know, primed to break into the big league or otherwise, has you most excited? Well, I think we we, we touched on earlier Rasmus Sandin is. Mm-hmm. A real good player in the league. 
his ability to skate, his vision is is exceptional. I, I'm really excited to see what uh, what he looks like once we get into the regular season, and he's going against the teams with their their normal lineup as opposed to preseason. Uh, and then we start to get down, uh, like drafting uh, Nick Robertson this year in the second round. Uh, they've already signed him to a contract, and there's mm-hmm. been nice talks and good hype build for him. I, I think for me, though, it's going back two years ago uh, when we drafted uh, Timothy Lilligren, um, 17th overall. Uh, I really think that he still has the potential to be something great. Like that year, he came in as a, as a top five projected player. Uh, had a bout of mono, which really set him back. And he still hasn't gotten back to where he was in that being highly touted, but he's getting there. And he's played two years in the AHL as an 18 and 19-year-old. Uh, obviously, Sandin has, has leapfrogged him, but I'm hoping this year he, he really takes another step forward and, and that he's someone that can be another cheap defensive, uh, uh, someone on the back end that we can use just because of how much money we're paying to our forward group right now. Got to have those boys on the LCs, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And in, this team is going to have to be supported by entry-level contracts. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think they've done a really good job. I think they actually have, a, have done an underrated job. I mean, they've drafted and, they've drafted and developed their top-end guys, you know, like just impeccably, like – Matthews was, of course, the, the first overall, so he was a no-brainer. But they they made the right picks along the way. They got Nylander. They got Marner. There was other players surrounding those players who who they could have taken, right? Mm-hmm. And but they've done a really good job in the later rounds. And we have a lot of we have more players in waiting than people than people think. And as the fourth lines in the NHL move away from more of the Neanderthal style of, of fourth lines. We got a lot of guys on the cheap who are going to be able to fill those roles like Adam Brooks, uh, uh, Jeremy Brocco up the lineup a little bit more, probably be a great third line winger, but he's just got a few, got a few all court issues, so to speak, to, mm-hmm. to work on and a bit of skating, but he's, probably is as good a uh, has, has as good vision as say a Mitch Marner does like elite vision. And those guys are going to come in and backfill our, our bottom six. And uh, I think people are going to be surprised at, uh, at, at what we have down there. Um, there, there's some, gr- there's some grit down there, but, but grit with speed and skill. And, um, and of course, they have all the money in the world to spend on development. I mean, there's no, there's no mm-hmm. cap on that. So they have the weight of their, of their MLSC ownership and a really good coach. And so I'm not even like, that's why signing these higher contracts, you know, we got our guys locked up and, but I have confidence that, that our supporting players are always going to be there for us when we need them. And that's, and that's just how a team like Pittsburgh, right, stayed relevant for so long and just kept winning. They just kept recycling that bottom six, you know what I mean? Just recycling yeah. guys in on ELCs. They had their big sure. guns at the top, and they just kept developing. And I think the Leafs are primed maybe more than any other team in the league right now to, to keep that cycle going and be dangerous for a really long time. They could, they're probably the Calder Cup favorites going into this year. I mean, I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. an AHL expert, but, damn, they have, they have a, lot of, a lot of talent down there. Yeah, they certainly do. The Amherst, uh would certainly know a thing or two about that. Yeah. But, uh, guys, 
I think that wraps us up for this week. Um, thank you so much for joining. Uh, awesome chat. And we will see how things shake out. Leafs will undoubtedly be kind of at the top of the Atlantic division there. The Sabres probably not so much. But, hey, like we talked about before, this is a league of parody, and you just never really know. This has been episode six of the Beyond the Blade Around the Atlantic miniseries. Sean Orr and Trevor Bass from Left Coast Leafs podcast. You can follow them on Twitter at Left Coast Leafs. Guys, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. And that brings us down to our last episode. Our last episode is recording, I believe, next Tuesday. And since everyone obviously knows which team is left, that will feature someone covering the Tampa Bay Lightning. That guest will be announced this week. So keep your eyes peeled for that. See you later. Yes.